Hello, it's Thursday, February the 2nd, and welcome to a Hoover Institution special podcast looking at the first two weeks of Donald Trump's presidency. I'm your host, Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow who follows state and national politics. Joining me today in studio, David Brady, Stanford University political scientist and the Davies Family Senior Fellow here at Hoover, and Doug Rivers, a Stanford political scientist and Hoover Senior Fellow and Chief Scientist for YouGov, the Palo Alto-based internet survey firm. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to see you. Nice to see you. It is Groundhog Day. While you may or may not have seen your shadow in Northern California, it's been raining off and on. Puxatawney Phil did see his, which means six more weeks of winter. Meanwhile, Donald Trump has cast a decidedly long shadow across the nation in just two weeks on the job. We've had 19 executive orders so far. I looked it up. Barack Obama did, by the way, 19 executive orders in his first 12 days on the job. How many executive orders do you think George Washington did, did in his entire time in office? Zero. Doug? Um, I'll go for, with you, zero. You go any higher, you'll be closer. <laughs> One. <laughs> One. Eight. He did eight in his entire time in office. FDR ended up doing 3,700 executive orders in his time in office. But in addition to the executive orders, Trump has um, had one foreign leader visited. He's managed to alienate at least one or two via phone calls. He's had one Supreme Court nomination and just a daily diet, it seems. Now, are are these numbers actual executive orders or the broader it's setup, the combination executive of action? Of, you mean a, with a lot of, okay. Okay, you caught me on that, Dr. Thank Brady. you. Very good. I try not to get into arguments with Brady about history. Yeah, good thinking. <laughs> just one correction. He lived through it. I've lived through it. <laughs> okay. Those of you listening at home who have access to a pencil and a piece of paper, I want you to hit the pause button right now because we're getting into the math portion of this podcast. So hit the pause button and come back. Be ready to write down numbers. Okay? Hit pause. Thanks. Now write down these numbers. Barack Obama, 68 and 12. George W. Bush, 57 and 25. Bill Clinton, 58 and 20. Those are the answers to where the past three presidents stood when they came into office. Those are their approval and disapproval numbers per Gallup the first time they were measured as incumbent presidents of the United States. Obama, 68% approval, 12% disapproval. Bush, 43, 57% approved, 25% disapproved. Bill Clinton, 58% approved, 20% disapproved. If you go back to ancient times, or what seemed like ancient times 50, 60 years ago, Dwight Eisenhower enters office with 68% approval, 7% disapproval. John Kennedy, interestingly enough, coming off a very narrow controversial election, approval rating of 72%, disapproval of 6%. I'm teeing this up, Doug Rivers, so you can tell us where Donald Trump stands two weeks into his presidency. So we've measured this uh, now daily. And uh, Trump started with 41 approve, 35 disapprove, uh, which is better than he did in the election. 40, 41 and 35. Um, right. Which would be historically Plus, low. Plus, that would be the lowest that and has the, ever been seen. And the highest for a disapprove. But from Trump's perspective, that's better than he did in the election because he was minus two versus Clinton and being plus six in approval might be argued <coughs> to be better. Uh, what's really striking is not only did he start with a low approval and high disapproval, but how quickly the disapprovals have gone up. Um, in our um, December 28th through 30th poll, we had 38 approved, so down three points from 41, up to 53 from 35 disapproved. Um, he's now in a situation where his disapproval numbers are <laughs> higher than his approval numbers. Basically, every Democrat uh, or nearly every Democrat is disapproving of him, frequently strongly disapproving. 
what is saving him at the moment is that his base is not defected. Uh, so Republicans are still, and the people who voted for Trump, are still overwhelmingly <coughs> on the positive side. Um, if he were to lose those, then I think he would be in very serious trouble, even worse than he is now. Mm-hmm. Dave? Well, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, he started started at a low rate, and uh, particularly over the weekend, um, uh, not proper riding of the ban, et cetera, the protests. So he's uh, fallen, and and he's starting at a very low rate. So I'm not even sure that if he stayed at that rate and it was only his base that supported him, uh, that wouldn't be good. And if that falls, it'd be much worse. He, um, he is the only president that, in my lifetime, who has taken office and has not at least tried to do something that would be considered unifying. Right. Um, it is the case that uh, Clinton in 93 and George W. Bush in 2001 and Barack Obama in 2009 quickly got to a point where only their partisans were supporting them. Uh, after they passed uh, key points of their program on party-line votes. But the difference is they did, at least uh, before they took office as part of their inaugural, uh, at least make an effort uh, to appeal to a broad swath of the public. And Trump, uh, from his inaugural speech on, um, has done just the opposite, uh, that... uh, you know, his inaugural was this very bleak portrait uh, of the state of the nation and the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did go through with a set of executive orders that could be viewed as being um, uh, doing what he promised to do. Right. Uh, but uh, they were not done in a way that softened their blow at all. And there's a second way to look at that. I just actually wrote a column on this at the Sacramento Bee, which is coming out um, uh, on Friday morning, in that um, I went back. Donald Trump was actually born under a Sagittarian moon. If you go back to June <laughs> 1946, he was born under a Sagittarian moon. Bill, Sag- we do science here. <laughs> Sag- Sagittarius is the archer. And if you look at Donald Trump's presidency, it's been two weeks of archery in this mm-hmm. regard. He has a set of arrows in his quiver, and he is with frequency drawing out an arrow, and that arrow is directed at the heart of the democratic liberal existence. He does an executive order on Mexico City policy. That is a direct shot at abortion. He does an executive order on the Keystone Pipeline. That's a direct shot at the environment. He does a executive order on the travel ban on immigration. That is a direct shot at both immigration and the, and the great progressive idea of an inclusive society. And then he does a Supreme Court announcement. So yes, he's made good on campaign promises, but I don't think it's a coincidence that all these things are aimed at things which do one thing, which is deliberately drive the left crazy. Well, look, let's be honest. When Barack Obama came in, he did exactly the same thing. As you said, he had the same. I, I had it as he had a, actually a couple more uh, executive orders or executive actions. But he did the same thing. He reversed the uh, Bush policy on uh, abortion. Right. He uh, gutted uh, several of the things that Bush had done, some of the treaties. Uh, so I think that, um, so the interpretation is, as I recall, I don't think Obama caught it quite as badly, although he wasn't popular with Republicans, but 
uh, President Obama, when he signed the executive, they were uh, they were set to turn, overturn aspects of the Bush administration that the liberals and the Democratic Party didn't like. So you may say that he did them more clumsily. Yes. Uh, they weren't as properly drawn, but nevertheless, it's the same. Yeah. It's the same politics. Yeah. So Carl Rove had an interesting piece in the Wall Street Journal this morning that basically, I think the title was something like Amateur Hour. Um, and he sort of laid out how you would have done the immigration ban right. uh, in a way uh, that would have um, been much less controversial. Um, one of the things we found is uh, people were not surprised uh, by the immigration ban. They were surprised that it happened so quickly. Right. Um, and there was a negative view, even among Trump supporters, uh, that it was not carefully thought out and executed. And right. when you say that, you mean your, the poll results. Right. Right. Um, only 14% of the, uh, of the public um, think it was uh, carefully uh, thought out and executed. Yeah. Uh, so they have a, you know, it, it appears that uh, there's no one in charge here, and that cannot help uh, Trump out. Uh, the fact that he is out there on Twitter saying all sorts right. of things, uh, but doesn't appear to be in control of his administration. Right. There are basic rules to White House communications, and this is something that a very nonconformist White House doesn't understand yet, I think. And if you're going to do an executive order, you, you have to have some basic things together. They put out that order. They couldn't give, it took them an hour to get a copy, a hard copy to the press. Mm -hmm. It took them a couple of hours after that to give them the list of the seven countries. Not until the next day did they roll out any sort of policy expert to explain. So they spent the entire next three days chasing the story and trying to right. explain how it didn't apply to green cards and so forth. Meanwhile, so in addition to the confusion of that, you had the scenes at the airport, so they chased the story. I would contrast that to the rollout on Judge Gorsuch, right. in which he not only kind of ramped up the drama very effectively, but his side, the conservatives, and this is interesting because this is one issue which I'd be, I'm looking forward to your polling numbers on Gorsuch because I think if there's one issue in which Republicans will be almost entirely united, it's going to be the right. Gorsuch nomination. But you already see people on his side mobilize, they're already doing ads in select Democratic states and so forth. In other words, that one, they were teed up and ready to go with it. Yeah, and the Democrats, even though they knew Gorsuch was the likely uh, pick, uh, had nothing to go on that. They were caught flat-footed on that. Right. Um, but in the case of the uh, the ban on refugees, mm -hmm. uh, they had members of the cabinet, uh, you know, Homeland Security, uh, state, uh, who apparently were not consulted. Uh, so it's very embarrassing when the members, senior members of the administration, uh, whose uh, area covers something like this, mm -hmm. aren't ready to go out there and right. uh, and defend it. Uh, much less, you know, members of Congress. It wouldn't have been very hard to have done that. Well, I, and I guess you have to add to that. Why? Why? Uh, it's astounding to me that he would. Uh, Australia's uh, Australia's a great friend of ours, and uh, and after his uh, apparently hanging up on the Australian prime, the uh, John McCain. And others have been calling the Australian embassy and saying we're still friends. Blah blah blah. How to explain? It. So. Uh, in part, I mean, in part, it's, it's sort of the, if you talk about an inept way of doing it, but in addition to that, it's, you just, it seems to me you just don't want, no matter, you can be the biggest Trump supporter in the world, you don't want to, why do you want to hack off the Australians? Yeah, I think Trump <coughs> is counting on his base not caring about these niceties. Exactly. And, yeah. uh, in fact, his base applauding at his poking of uh, right. the center and the left. 
Uh, that's part of giving them recognition. Uh, but wow, uh, I think right. he's uh, making it a very tough needle to thread. He is, I think, uh, the stories of who sits on NSC meetings, for example, who attends national security meetings. I think it's another one where he's going to say exactly who cares. Uh, but let me ask you gentlemen this. So he gets elected last November, and his numbers are underwater at the time of his election, right? Right. He is underwater right now as President of the United States. If he can get elected President of the United States as a sitting president, why does it matter that his poll numbers are underwater? I don't think it really matters at this point. Uh, him being at about 40% uh, on approval at this point is not something that will destroy him. Uh, but what happens if he goes to 30, uh, which means that he suddenly loses his leverage over Republicans in Congress. He can no longer threaten them. Um, you know, at that point, I think he's in trouble. Uh, right now, it's it's a bad start, but it uh, is not something that in the end will matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it depends what happens from here. I, I agree that if he, the lower he goes, the, the worse it gets. But even, <clears throat> even without that, there are going to be some issues that he's going to run. So, so the real question is, you can see the Republican Congress sitting there. They've had an agenda since 2010, really 2011, and uh, they want parts of it passed. They want they want to do tax cuts for sure, cut tor- corporate rates. So there's some things they they all agree on, and that they want to get done. Uh, but there there are certain issues that are going to come up, and for me, one of the ones that's going to so so the question is then one of those Republicans going to break, and it's right. going to be easier for them to break, as Doug says, if it's at 30. But I think for me, the one issue that's clearly going to cause problems for him is the issue of Putin. Mm-hmm. And it's clear that he wants to got to reset the button and uh, redo the deal. And basically, that would be to let Putin have more of his way in the Ukraine and the Crimea. And uh, there are all sorts of people in the Republican Party, including uh, people, in the, uh, people in the administration, Homeland Security, Defense Department, right. as well as Lindsey Graham, John McCain, and a bunch of others, Rob Portman, Ohio, and they are not gonna, they're, right. they're not gonna be able, irrespective of his numbers, they're not gonna be willing to go along with that. And that's gonna, that, then the question yeah. is, does that drive the numbers lower? Yeah, and I think it, <clears throat> I think it would at some point. Um, the difference is that in the case of foreign policy, uh, for the most part, Trump doesn't need Congress to do anything affirmatively. Right. Um, the difficulty on uh, tax policy mm-hmm. is uh, that's one where they do have a problem with right. the filibuster. Right. They are going to need some Democratic mm-hmm. votes uh, to get cloture. Um, and at this point, uh, I don't see how he gets eight Democratic votes. Yeah. Yeah, and the interesting thing was, uh, I now believe that what they're doing on, uh, so the dog's right about, so you can <clears throat> do some of the budget on <clears throat> reconciliation budget, mm-hmm. might try to slide some taxes in there, but uh, on, say, Dodd-Frank, it's my understanding that they're now trying to put, uh, they're going over this now and trying to figure out how much of Dodd-Frank they can put in a reconciliation budget, which is quite, I'm because serious, all, which is quite you, problematic. You can only go into, you can only go into, into <clears throat> yeah, the reason is you only right. need a majority. You need uh, just 51 votes on right. that, not, not 52. So everything's going to be in reconciliation. <laughs> well, there, the, the, what I heard was, uh, so the question is, 
reconciliation has to have some, uh, not just an effect on the budget, but if it's going to go in a reconciliation act, has to have tax and other things. And that's a question for the parliamentarian right. and others to answer. It's going to be uh, complicated, but count on it, uh, count on its being there. Uh, Trump is already, uh, I mean, so there's uh, all these issues where if you have to have 60 votes, it's over. And so they're trying to figure that out. So even on the not Supreme Court nominee, there's already, Trump already mentioned right. uh, going nuclear and uh, making it 50 votes. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and McConnell indicated his willingness to do that. Exactly. Two questions for you guys. Uh, do you see right now a gap between Trump ideas and Trump the president? Uh, an example being the immigration <clears throat> ban, where you see Trump's numbers at a certain level, but... Can you make an argument that Trump ideas tend to run five, just an arbitrary number, five or ten points higher than Trump himself? And then the second question, uh, Doug, Doug, you probably know this better, what pushes voters more when it comes to these matters? Is it, is it the idea itself or is it the perception that the White House is not handling the idea properly, is not as controlled, the, uh, it looks amateurish and rolling it out, just it's not in control of the situation? Yeah, so... Um, First, I expected the immigration ban to poll fairly well. Uh, if it had been done in a sort of controlled, moderate way. D defined well in this day and age as well, 55%? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a clear uh, above 50%. Uh, yeah. Whenever Trump is above 50%, he should be happy. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not a, uh, a region that he has visited often, except in his dreams. Um, the... Uh, what we found was uh, that immediately following, uh, this was last weekend, uh, the introduction of the immigration ban, uh, it polled 40% um, uh, in favor, 43% opposed, uh, which is uh, several points better than Trump's own popularity in that poll. Uh, so I think the Trump ideas um, effectively presented uh, do a bit better than Trump himself. Uh, what we saw in the election was that, you know, 10% of the people who voted for Trump uh, said that he wasn't qualified to be president. Those people are clearly there because they agree with him uh, on the issues and they dislike uh, Hillary Clinton and the Democrats in general. Mm -hmm. right. That seems right to me. Right. So if Donald Trump wants to roll out, let's say, tax reform, I mean, there's a very open question is what is going to be the next big move. Is it going to be Obamacare right. or tax reform? Let's argue, let's argue for the sake of it, taxes. So tax reform is normally sold as a tax cut. Right. Uh, both Democrats and Republicans, whether they're raising or lowering taxes, uh, introduce a tax cut for middle-income uh, Americans. Uh, the odd situation we've gotten to is that we've had now 25 years of tax reform where taxes on the middle class and on the poor mm -hmm. uh, have kept going down to the point where federal income taxes are not paid by large fractions of the population. Right. Um, furthermore, over this time, uh, the Democrats have gotten quite good at countering Republican uh, tax cut proposals because right. they focus on who the benefits go to. And obviously, if you cut taxes, the bulk of the benefits go to people who pay a lot of taxes who are the rich. Um, so I'm, I'm not so convinced that uh, Trump can make uh, tax reform uh, a winner. Uh, and then the Republicans in Congress are very much intent on um, what we at Hoover think of as pro-growth policies, which right. is cutting taxes on corporations, going to consumption taxes, 
Um, and these are not particularly popular among the public. Uh, the public believes that if you cut taxes on corporations, that's going to the corporations as opposed to, yeah. you know, finally ending up being paid by somebody else. Right. I want to note to the listeners, by the way, that this is the first of a series of podcasts that we're doing about the 100 days, and we will have some Hoover of economists and tax specialists on to talk about well, what Trump that, will yeah. do and what they think will work. My understanding of the tax cut is that um, – it's uh, it's it's going to be budget neutral, and so if you think you live in California, so they always say that, <clears throat> right? But they but the law sometimes says so. My understanding of the way the tax cut at this point looks is that uh, if you pay, suppose you make a million dollars a year in California, you pay thirty nine point six, then there's the three point odd percent that you pay on the Affordable Care Act tax on everything you make for Medicare. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's roughly 43%. And they're going to cut that to 33 but they're not going to allow you to deduct state and local taxes, which is about 11%. So that's a push for uh, people at the high end. And that the real economic benefits, uh, in my view, are going to come from cutting the corporate tax rate, which lets them bring more money back in. I, I agree with Doug, they're not particularly popular, but the, I, I believe yeah. they create Evidently, growth. Donald Trump doesn't really believe he carried California when you get rid of the illegal votes, because uh, otherwise he wouldn't be screwing us with a it's, proposal like that. It's true, but but the fact, I don't, I don't think that's how I think that's, uh, th- this is the one coming out of the Congress. And the second, uh, and the second, uh, so the, the second part of that is that they would lower the uh, capital gains tax. Right. Between yeah. 15 and 20 percent. So let me take which you also back, would be good. Let me take you fellows back to a simpler time. That's 1981 with a new president, Ronald Reagan, and the highlight of Reagan's first hundred days would be getting shot. But before the assassination attempt, Reagan does something which, in hindsight, is very smart. He goes on television and he gives a speech, and he outlines in a speech to the nation the need for tax cuts for tax reform. And this is 1981. Uh, CNN is still in its infant stage. You don't have the galaxy of cable news. You don't have social media. You don't have YouTube or anything that politicians have at their disposal today. So a a speech to the nation is a very effective way of trying to galvanize attention toward Congress. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the plan, if you look at how taxes moved in 1981 in Washington, Reagan does the speech in February. It very quietly moves along, and then there's a flurry activity in August where I believe in something like 17 days it goes from being introduced in the House to getting through the House, the Senate, on Ronald Reagan's desk in Santa Barbara for a signing. Yes, it's a different age, but it does beg the question, David Doug, of how this president communicates taxes. Well, in February, when Reagan did that, it was before the congressional vote on the reconciliation where they have to set the limits. And so instead of, the great thing about a reconciliation bill is instead of having 13 appropriation bills, it's all in one bill. So instead of having to go 13 times in front of the public, it was a very smart move to make make it a one-time, a one-time move. Uh, It's true that uh, nobody quite gets the uh, amount of media attention, but nobody wants media attention more than, more than Donald Trump. So, uh, so uh, my guess is uh, I, I don't see... I, I don't see the strategy there. So there's strategy and tactics, right? Uh, so normally, Reagan, so Reagan's tactic was, I'm going to give this thing because strategy is I need to do right. it once. Uh, so far, I just see tactics. I don't see. Right. But it I don't in, know. It maybe there's a strategy. I don't see it. But also, Doug's because there's a question of a polling question because I trust he has a pollster working out of the White House who's going to poll tax reform and say, this line works, this line doesn't work. 
I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> for all their faults, uh, being poll-driven is probably not exactly. one of them. But the point um, is you have to, in some way, figure out what right. message is going to go and ask the public. Yeah. The, I mean, I think the first difference is that Reagan picked up support by going on television. Uh, I don't... Right. Trump's strong uh, suit is not actually the set speech from the Oval Office, or at least so far. Right. Um, it doesn't appear that's the format that works that's best That's why for I find him. this interesting, because back in 1981, there was a very clear bully pulpit operation, which was using the national address. Right. Speeches are not this president's forte, and he likes to use Twitter, and he likes to use quick-hitting social media, so that's not a bully pulpit itself. So, again, I'm just curious as to how he would actually try to drive this. Um, it'll be interesting to see what strategy they do on well, that. I, he did, you know, drag the networks out for the announcement of the Gorsuch uh, nomination to the Supreme Court on yes. uh, Tuesday. And got quite a few viewers, too. It was pretty yes, nice. he, he's good TV. Nice. On the other hand, the networks hate it because they lose the advertising revenue. So it's a, it's a pretty big right. hit. Uh, I, um, there's only so much you can do before they will stop giving you free time. That's Boy, great. you wouldn't know that from the uh, campaign, would you? No, you would not. That's not true. Can't well, be true of CNN they weren't, and uh, MSNBC and Fox. No, but the difference in the campaign yeah. is that coverage was not uh, uh, losing the mad revenue. Yeah. It was actually gaining them because he was drawing viewers, right. and they still get to re run the ads. On that question, you I'll can't put an ad in the middle of a presidential speech. I guess on that question, I'll wait to see what the. I'll wait to see what the actual policy proposal is. We we don't. We don't know what the we don't know what the tax proposal is. Uh, take the Affordable Care Act. Uh, we do know that Repu I think the Republicans in the Congress understand they own it, mm -hmm. and that if they mess it up, that it would make the Obama rollout look like smooth as silk, and mm -hmm. that would that would uh, really hurt them in the, the, the eight, 2018, 2020 elections. Right. And so they know it's not going to be easy to do. I, I think the Medicaid parts that, that's pretty straightforward. Since 1994, every health care plan Republicans have sent up is they give uh, block grants to the states, right. and those states then can use it on Medicaid. Now, the last thing I saw, and not so hard, was that uh, one of the things they're going to do is they may do some folding in. So if a state has an exchange, if a state has an exchange like California and likes it, my understanding is the current thought is that what they'll do is they'll say, California, you can keep your currency exchange, uh, not currency exchange, you can keep your uh, exchange, uh, insurance exchange, and we're going to give you 90%. We're going to cover 90 to 95% of it and then you, you cover the rest of it. Right. So that would take care of a bunch of states. And yeah, I don't get them. that one. Because what? what that means is that the Democratic states, which are the ones that are going to keep their exchanges, mm -hmm. uh, are going to be subsidized by the Republican states. Right. And that's right. So then the problem is they have the problem of the Republican states that haven't done that. And how are they going to do that? Well, one claim is they're going to they can just block granite and say, do what you want with that on the other thing. But but the point is, it's not settled. So it's hard to. So given that we don't know exactly where they're going, and I don't think they're going to be in any hurry to get there because they know they can't mess it up. So, uh, so my view is I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I, will he have tactics? Once there's a uh, once there's a uh, policy, right. but I don't think we know what any of the policies are. 
I think they're in a very difficult position on Obamacare. That uh, it was very difficult to pass in the first place to get a deal that uh, could get uh, majority support when the Democrats had 60 votes. Uh, he's working with a lot less. Uh, the Republicans have voted for a repeal, uh, but he has promised that repeal will come with everyone being covered, it costing less, and it being better. They've also uh, added a little wrinkle to it in that you don't hear the word replace much uh, from members. What no. you hear is the word repair. Yes, repair. That's an ex excellent point, <laughs> and that's exactly the direction of my comment. Right. That, more succinctly stated by you, you hear don't replace, it's repair. That means they're talking about folding exactly. stuff. So here. they're going to repeal Obamacare <laughs> and replace it with the Affordable Care Act? Trump Care. <laughs> 2 now, there is a bully pulpit moment coming up for him, and he is going to speak to Congress, a joint session of Congress. They're not calling it a State of the Union address, but it is his first State of the Union-like appearance. So you're looking at his numbers and ideas. Doug, do you think he goes up there and does a shotgun approach and throw 25 ideas out at them in the course of an hour, or does he stay focused on one or two specific things? <laughs> uh, I, th I'm, I think it's safe to say there won't be one or two specific things. Right. Uh, the question is, uh, you know, what level of detail will there be on policy? Because in the past, he's largely floated above the details of policy. Right. Right. And people are expecting at this point, even if it's not in the speech, there to be some proposals that uh, Congress can react to. Mm -hmm. uh, and so far, uh, you know, there really isn't much of anything out there yet. Do we have any idea when the his budget will be ready? That's an awfully good question. I was uh, actually, I was thinking today, I have not seen uh, much written about who his OMB director is. So it's, I yeah. assume somebody, assume somebody's writing up a budget there. And they're trying yeah, to I certainly that. hope that in one of the podcasts you do in the future on this, that you'll have John Kogan in on budget policy. That was going to be my first question if Dr. Kogan yeah. is kind enough to join us uh, going on that. But I asked that question, gentlemen, because you have one of two choices in, an, in a situation like that. He can go in front of Congress and he can stay in pure campaign mode and say, ride with me. Right. Or he can try to make a pivot, and this gets to the polling question in terms of bleeding numbers. Do they actually think, okay, it's time now to show a different side of Donald Trump and stand up and try to, try to get, not be too wishful and talk about being yeah. purely conciliatory, but talk about a couple of very specific things in which, in theory, everybody should come together. Yeah, so I would have guessed that they would have spent the time between the election uh, and the inauguration, and the, uh, uh, essentially trying to say, I'm serious, I'm reaching out. Right. Uh, and they really haven't uh, done that. Uh, I'm not sure Trump is capable of that. Mm -hmm. I bet some people in the White House would like him to do that. Um, but, you know, so far that just doesn't seem to be in his uh, wheelhouse. No, it does not. Um. I, I, I mean, it's hard to it's it's hard to say um, on that question. He's he's uh, the most unique president uh, <laughs> we've ever had on on uh, on this dimension. So, right. at some point, there have to be policy proposals. That well, it's like news overload at this point. There is every day, uh, you know, at least one, often two or three uh, stories of Trump has done this today and. Right. Uh, yeah. And what's interesting is some days they're good for Trump, some days they're not good for Trump, some days they're of his own making, some days they are, they are accidents that go off. For example, today the story they're chasing in Washington is the question of whether or not Russian sanctions are being undone, and there's a great confusion as who's speaking for the administration. That's a bad news day. 
day before, though, you're talking about the Supreme Court judge. That's a good news day for him. I think that worked fairly well for him. Yes. Um, you know, it, it appealed pretty uniformly to Republicans mm -hmm. and wasn't greeted uh, as being ridiculous uh, by the center. Um, but I, I find it hard to find a lot of days that have been uh, good, much less planned. Um, it would seem to me it'd be fairly easy to stick to a topic for a day um, because, you know, a lot of the things he's going after do have, uh, you know, reasonably good support. Right. Um, and he's not taking advantage of that at all at the moment. All right, let's get out of this with one last thought. Um, I went back and I looked at the last three presidents, and I tried to see if there was a pattern as to whether or not they gained steam or lost steam in their first 100 days in office. And Obama, these are all per gallop. These are the gallop three-day rolling samples that they do. Obama came in at 68%, and 100 days later, he was at 65%, 3% shift. Bush comes in at 57%, and 100 days later, he's up to 62%. Uh, Bill Clinton's at 58% coming in. He's at 55% 100 days later. Uh, Doug, in your history of following Donald Trump, uh, so you have him at 45% coming into the presidency, correct? Uh, 41. 41, okay. 41, 38. 41. So uh, put you on the spot here going back to the lofty campaign. What was his high watermark in terms of a number? What was his low watermark in terms of numbers? Well, he never got close to 50% favorable ratings. So uh, his ceiling it's a little is a, different. His ceiling is around 40. It's a little different question, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, his ceiling appears to have been, in terms of favorability, a uh, low 40s. Okay. Um, and for most of the campaign was under 40. Uh, he just had the good fortune of running against somebody who was only slightly more positive. And then what was his trough? Um, he dropped 68% at one point. Yeah, he had negatives, so, right. uh, you know, was down to the low 30s in low terms 30s. of approval. After the, after the uh, tape. So he is right now in the high 30s per your poll? Yes. Okay. I don't want you to predict things, but do you see the potential for him to slide further? Do you think he will lock in around this point for the, the next few weeks? I think he will uh, slide further. Further. Uh, but I haven't predicted Trump directly uh, for the last 18 months. Dave? Well, I mean, at some point you have to make the campaigning governing distinction. And right. I think, so for sports, the question Doug and I have had disagreements about is uh, the question of what he's done has been essentially symbolic. I said I'd build a wall, here's the wall. I said I'd do this, I've done that. Uh, in some sense, it's symbolic because uh, the the voters that uh, voters that were for him were people who uh, came from areas that were depressed, uh, wanted jobs, etc. All those sort of things that we all know about now. And the question is, uh, are they going to be satisfied with symbolism, or are they ultimately more results oriented? And I think we've disagreed. On that, I think they're yeah. more results-oriented. He thinks I think they're in, more symbolic. I think at least in the short run, the, yeah. the symbolic politics can hold them. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm with you, Doug, on the dipping in this regard. A president has not just job approval and disapproval, but also there's such a thing as consumer confidence. And when you bungle an executive order, when there is dissension within the administration for a certain policy, that makes people uncertain. Not just whether or not he's doing a good job or a bad job, but you really know what he's doing. On a, yeah. That's and that's going to be the challenge for him, I think, in the in the near future. Yeah, can so that can he just show that he's the master of the domain? Right. That certainty is uh, really important. Even even if it was even if it was somebody that 
even if it's somebody you didn't like, but you're certain they behave in a particular way, you can plan around that. So if you look at businesses, uh, so Trump brings Silicon Valley people out and, they're, and they come back fairly positive, but as you make the immigration decision, which was deadly, and uh, some people have said uh, uh, special visas uh, that are necessary for Silicon Valley that uh, Trump and Bannon favor getting rid of them. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're looking now, Apple, all sorts of people are thinking what to do in regard to suing on this ban. Uh, business does not like uncertainty. And this president has yet to, it seems to me, show to business, look, I'm serious about it. We're going to have tax cuts. We're going to have uh, reform tax. We're going to be tax cuts for corporations. We're going to cut the capital gains right. tax. And, it, and one of the things they're looking at, they're looking at the immigrant brand. They're looking at trade. They don't want, they don't want any trade war with China. They don't, want, they, don't like, uh, they don't like the situation with Mexico. It's quite complicated. Mm -hmm. And so I think they, like uh, many others, are uh, people who are, tend to be objective, not, not Democrats, or no matter what he does, they're not going to like him. They're sitting out there and saying, we want to see some certainty here. We want to see some predictability, right. uh, because without that, we can't figure out what we're going to do. So in the first 100 days, then, the question is, can the first CEO president pass the CEO test? Yeah, the, Trump was not a conventional CEO of a no. large corporation. Uh, he is doing things that uh, potentially make life difficult for corporate America. The stock market is up because of the promise of corporate tax reform, of a capital gains tax cut. Regulation. Uh, what happened, yeah, decrease in regulation. Uh, but what happens if uh, his inability to navigate Washington sinks those things, yep. which, uh, you know, Republicans think, you know, for the first time in a long time, holding, uh, you know, essentially all of the federal government under their control. They should be able to deliver that. Right. And uh, he doesn't seem particularly focused on making those things happen. Okay. One thing we know, it's not going to be boring for the next seven weeks, is it? It is not. <laughs> okay. Doug Rivers, Dave Brady, thanks for coming by the studio today. Hope to see you guys in about 86 days from now so we can all <laughs> talk about how we were terribly wrong about all of this. Machine to the trend of 2016. You've been listening to a Hoover Institution podcast focusing on the first two weeks of the Trump presidency. For more information about the Hoover Institution, please visit our website. That's www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which sends you the institution's latest news and analysis straight to your inbox. You can also find Hoover on Facebook and Twitter, and our hitter, Twitter handle is at HooverINST. On behalf of my Hoover colleagues, this is Bill Whalen. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more in the first 100 days of the Trump presidency. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.